free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own my special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim but change never came It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff in studio with Peter Phillips. Today is a special program in honor of the 4th of July and American independence. We'll examine the history of American free thought and the importance of freedom of inquiry to American society. Our guests include Roderick Bradford, producer of the four-hour documentary American Free Thought, covering the history of censorship and secularism in the United States. Joining us also is Tom Flynn, executive director of the Council of Secular Humanism and editor of Free Inquiry magazine. We hope you'll stay tuned as we look at American free thought this 4th of July special. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised another guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured made for why taxing all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love of living. Thanks for joining us on the Project Censored show today for Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. Today on the program, we honor the 4th of July and American independence. We'll be examining the history of American free thought and the importance of freedom of inquiry. Here's Peter Phillips to introduce today's guests, Roderick Bradford and Tom Flynn. I'd like to also tell listeners that we'll be playing special clips from the documentary series, American Free Thought. Peter? Throughout history, the two most important principles in human affairs have been the power of ideas and the opposing power of religion. In the 19th century America, these forces became bitter rivals when former believers inspired by Tom Paine challenged the church and denounced dogmatic religion. Various authors, attorneys, abolitionists, editors, physicians, publishers, scientists, suffragists, and the American free thought movement were all part of this effort. These freethinkers embraced evolutionism, championed Charles Darwin, science and secularism, and they were often seen as enemies of God, shunned by many. Our guests today are Roderick Bradford, a filmmaker and author of the 2006 biography of D.M. Bennett, 19th century America's most controversial publisher and free speech martyr. In his 2011 film entitled D.M. Bennett, The Truth Seeker, he received the Boston Humanist Film Festival Grand Prize for the best feature-length film. Bradford has written articles published in the American Atheist, Truth Seeker, The Quest, Free Inquiry, and American History Magazine. He's a contributor to the new Encyclopedia of Unbelief and has written and produced the four-hour series, History and Censorship and Secularism, called American Free Thought. Also joining us today is Tom Flynn. Is executive director of the Council for Secular Humanism and editor of Free Inquiry magazine. He's director of the Robert Greene Ingersoll Birthplace Museum. He's editor of the New Encyclopedia of Unbelief and the author of The Trouble with Christmas and The Messiah Game, A Comedy of Terrors. 
Flynn is an executive producer of the American Free Thought series, which probes the atheist, agnostic, and humanist heritage from the American Revolution to the 1930s. So welcome, Roderick and Tom. Great to be with you today. Good to be here. So, Roderick, let's start with you. What's the genesis of the four-hour miniseries that's on the history of censorship and secularism, American Free Thought? After doing all the research and writing the biography of D.M. Bennett, I thought there was quite a history here that a lot of Americans don't know about, and that's the history of the American free thought movement. In the Bennett book, I pretty much focused on his years as the publisher, 1873 until 1882. And, of course, the golden age of free thought went decades longer. And I just thought there was a story here that Americans needed to know. Tell us about Bennett and his fights with the U.S. government and Comstock and, and what happened back then. That for many Americans, that's just sort of untold stories of history. D.M. Bennett was the founder of the Truth Seeker publication, and he founded that in 1873. He was arrested three times and was convicted for sending obscenity through the mail and served a year in prison. Obscenities were sexual information? Well, it was a book called Cupid's Yokes. It was a 26-page pamphlet, which was really more about women's rights, more about freedom of speech. Anthony Comstock also used these fluence in Congress to restrict birth control information from going through the mail as well. Right. And Anthony Comstock really detested D.M. Bennett because the truth seeker, of course, was a free thought publication, and Anthony Comstock was a religious zealot. So he went after Bennett really because of his publication of The Truth Seeker. So it was a proxy, basically, to attack these kinds of views, these unpopular views in Victorian America, at least among the establishment. Exactly. Now, let's, uh, Tom Flynn, let's, let's go back further. We, we'll obviously come back to the late 19th century and early 20th century, but let's go back to the roots of some of this, at least after the founding of the United States, there's this notion that the United States is a, a Christian nation, but of course one of the clear voices contrasting that myth would be that of Thomas Paine. Can you talk a little bit about that struggle from the early U.S.? Oh, very much so. As you said, it's uh, commonly bandied about the United States was founded as a Christian nation, but in fact nothing is farther from the truth. The vast majority of the founding fathers were deists. They believed in an impersonal God who had created the universe and then pretty much sat back and left people on their own. And in terms of where that kind of view stood on the intellectual spectrum at that time, that would be a position fairly similar to atheism or agnosticism today. One of the strange coincidences of history is that the American Revolution happened to break out at the time when the influence of Enlightenment thinking in philosophy and politics was at its peak. If the revolution had occurred 30 years earlier or 30 years later, it's unlikely that most of its architects would have been deists and held these Enlightenment views about the necessity for the separation of religion and government and uh, the primacy of human reason. So in a sense, we're very lucky that the American Revolution happened when it did, 
And that's a big part of the context that starts this historical argument going that really rolled all through into the 19th and then into the early 20th centuries in a precursor to today's culture wars. You know, we think we have culture wars today. Listeners who aren't that familiar with American history might be astonished to learn how many of these same issues were burning controversies uh, 100 years ago or so that are largely forgotten today. Indeed, speaking of the early republic, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, uh, an interesting day in American history where we have the death of two towering figures, uh, both uh, Presidents John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, one-time friends, rivals, and then rekindled their relationship toward the end of their lives. But there's something else very interesting, I think, that happened on that day that was eclipsed by the death of these figures. Um, and that, that was a publication by the noted atheist and former industrialist Robert Owen, his critique of individualism and his declarations of mental independence. You're familiar with Robert Owen. Oh, yes, very much so. To go back and look at some of Owen's language, I think, is quite amazing and and really illustrates your point here that when we talk about culture wars and people think about these in the present, if you go back to this early period, you know, Owen was railing against what he called the hydra of evils and a trinity of monstrous evils. And he was referring to, in his words, I refer to private or individual property, absurd and irrational systems of religion and marriage founded on individual property combined with some one of these irrational systems of religion. Can you comment more on on Owen in the 1820s? Owen really was the wellspring of what became a very diverse radical reform tradition, and it would develop into a wide variety of movements, uh, the American Socialist Movement uh, that laid the foundations for a lot of what would become American feminism. And, of course, Owen's son, Robert Dale Owen, carried forward a great deal of this work, and among many other things, He partnered with Frances Wright, the first woman to give public free-thought lectures in the United States. And uh, they got involved in a variety of initiatives, including a a community for freed slaves. And uh, they launched a a free-thought newspaper called The Free Inquirer, which is the namesake of the secular humanist magazine that I edit, Free Inquiry. We're speaking with Tom Flynn, executive director of the Council for Secular Humanism, also executive producer of American Free Thought Series. Also, Roderick Bradford, filmmaker, biographer of D.M. Bennett, 19th century's most controversial publisher and, and free speech martyr. We are talking about the American Free Thought Series today, and you're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. Peter? Roderick, let's go back to you and ask about... If someone says, well, what's American free thought? And what was the truth seeker about? What's your core here? What are you really portraying uh, besides just a challenge to religious dogma? Well, the truth seeker was the publication that D.M. Bennett founded in 1873. And he, he originally founded it in Paris, Illinois. And he got into a debate with uh, the local clergyman over the efficacy of prayer. And uh, when he sent his letters in, the Christian editor refused to print them, so he was determined to publish his own periodical, which was The Truth Seeker. I would like to get back to Cupid's Yokes. 
Tom, you have a really good definition of Ezra Haywood's Cupid's Yokes about uh, the, basically it was against the institution of marriage. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about what Cupid's Yokes was. Cupid's Yokes, as Rod mentioned, was a 26-page pamphlet. I occasionally refer to it as a cranky marriage reform manual. When we look back at the obscenity prosecutions that swirled around this little publication, if you actually go back and read it, it's amazing how mild it is. There's nothing pornographic about it. Basically, Haywood dared to articulate the idea that marriage should last as long as a man and a woman felt love for each other, and when that love died, they should be free to move on and seek other relationships. And a few nods to the distant possibility of birth control, and that's really it. The truth is, if you're having difficulty sleeping, there might be nothing better than to have a copy of Cupid's Yokes on your nightstand. Modern readers not only wouldn't find very much controversial in it, I don't think they'd find anything all that interesting, unless they're into history. I kind of find this interesting as well. Again, going back to to Robert Owen, I mean, it's interesting that they're calling out, and this is, I think, a big issue, a big cornerstone in terms of free thought, American free thought. And it's the idea that rights shouldn't be based on property. And the reason that Owen and others are talking about marriage as a system of control is that it was patriarchal. Women didn't have choices in the matter. So it seems that even how tame you're suggesting Cupid's yoke may have been, to go at these sacred cows was a no-no. And as the pendulum swings in American history in in the Victorian era, in the late 19th century, that that was something that was very unpopular to challenge. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And again, it ties back to the impetus at the heart of the American Revolution. At that time, in the late 1700s, the idea that rights inhered in the individual and that human beings had rights just because they were human beings was extremely radical. The prevailing view was that the the monarch ruled from God and that all power and authority came from above. And again, it really ties back into this remarkable 20 or 30 year window of history and how lucky we are that that's when the American Revolution happened, because the founders were really, really reaching out into a very advanced intellectual area at that time to frame the Declaration of Independence and say, we're not doing this because God told us to, we're doing this because the power to rule inheres in the people who are governed, and every individual deserves these same rights. Now, of course, the founders didn't always uh, live up to those ideals themselves, and there were a lot of privileges for, for example, property owners in early America. Women had no rights, slaves had no rights, and so on. But the Enlightenment concept that has finally come to bear fruit you know, in our own time as really applying this idea that every individual owns the rights over his life, her life. That was extremely radical stuff. And you can really view all of this 19th and early 20th century controversy over free thought as facets of that underlying conflict. The old authoritarian order versus the new order in which each individual was seen as sovereign. And independent, and that was part of what the American Revolution was about, individual independence and 
a recognition of making decisions about yourself. Now, in that, religions, of course, would often say, well, you're losing your ethics. We have a system that has the Ten Commandments. And as a part of that, then, there's this idea that secular humanists have ethics and that it's really based upon appeals to science, reason, and experience that justify human betterment and and individual growth and, and expansion. So could you say more about that and how that continues to be difficult, not only in the world today, but this 200-year history that we're talking about here? I think we need to look at this in the framework that over centuries, the old monarchical social order and the dominant religion, and in the West, Christian, that was Christianity, really evolved together. And the view of God that was enunciated in the churches was directly parallel to the view of the monarch, who governed by divine right, who had supreme power, all power proceeded downward from the king or from God. And this really, really gives you insight into the uh, sometimes hysterical level with which religious conservatives fought back against these Enlightenment ideals, whether it came to religion or the role of women or broadening of the franchise, whatever it might be. Because really, when you overthrow the idea of the supreme monarch and the whole system that comes with that, you're directly or indirectly attacking the vision of God as the celestial monarch. And I think religious conservatives noted quite perceptively that even when radicals inspired by Enlightenment ideals weren't directly confronting the churches, they were still undermining the social foundation on which the religions depended. We're speaking with Roderick Bradford and Tom Flynn, the forces behind the four-hour series American Free Thought. When I was listening to your last comment, I started to zone out because I couldn't figure out if you were talking about 2014 or uh, 1920-something or 1873. We're still fighting these <laughs> same battles. That's the core of this. There was really starting with World War One. There was an immense clampdown on dissent. Boatloads of anarchists were sent back to their countries. You had the Palmer raids. You had a great rise in popular censorship. And by the time you got into like the late 1920s, most Americans had kind of forgotten that this reform tradition had ever existed. And it still existed. There were bits and pieces of it here and there, although they tended to be fading in influence. And uh, in our in our miniseries, we kind of look at the 1930s as being the period where the last vestiges of the golden age of free thought completely petered out. And then, of course, we go through World War II, we come to the 1960s, and traditions of popular dissent arise again, and people tended to think that all of these great issues of individual freedom versus authority had just been invented. No, there's a huge history, and but the real, I think a real part of the reason why this miniseries is important is we're presenting the information that lets people tune back into how these battles took shape the last time around. I couldn't agree more. 
the historical context for the present in this series is, is I think, vital. And on the Project Censored show, we focus on a lot of these issues. We, we've spoken with Mark Crispin Miller about his Forbidden Bookshelf series. Again, going back and uncovering these things that happened that show that there once was some serious resistance, there was some vibrant debate. I shouldn't say once was. There still is today. But it's, again, it's not something that's going to be heralded by the establishment, by establishment publications and so forth. Sometimes we actually have to really seek for this as, well, to sort of go back to your truth seeker uh, meme there, uh, sometimes we have to really look for it. I think the American Free Thought series is a great introduction to that and a reminder of the rich heritage of free speech and individual thought in the United States. Now we're going to turn to an audio clip from the series American Free Thought. Here is an excerpt from part two of the four-part series titled Age of Reason. Long after Thomas Paine's death in 1809, his book, The Age of Reason, remained widely read and influential, and it continued to be attacked. A Massachusetts newspaper editor complained, Thomas Paine, that infidel in religion, seduces many of you, my countrymen. You read his Age of Reason and think the Bible a last year's almanac. A frustrated Christian missionary in Wisconsin lamented the extent of irreligion. This has always been a stronghold of infidelity from its first settlement, and a large share of the influence is still on that side of the question. The missionary condemned what he viewed as the cause. Paine's Age of Reason is read with avidity in many families and its doctrines are boldly and strenuously advocated by men of influence. Not a few mothers drink in this poison. In 1829, a gentleman traveling through Louisiana and Mississippi was shocked by what he allegedly saw. Atheism, loud, shameless, and bitterly persecuting. Infidelity, fashionable gloried in and triumphing over the weakness, helplessness, and absurding of Christianity. Clergymen continued their crusade against Thomas Paine and infidelity. Attacks on Paine poured down from the pulpit. After hearing a typical Sunday sermon condemning the revolutionary author-hero, a fair-minded Christian editor of a New Orleans newspaper wrote in disgust, it would appear from pulpit declamations on infidelity that Paine had done nothing in his whole life but curse God and drink brandy. And such was the picture drawn that I imagined a man with a bottle nose and bloated face full of carbuncles and named Tom Paine. I am no infidel. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I venerate and respect the clergy, but I love a patriot more. Although Thomas Paine and freethinkers were often called atheists and infidels, according to freethought publisher Gilbert Vale, the majority of freethinkers were not atheists. Vale wrote extensively on the opinions of the subscribers to his Beacon periodical and summarized the belief system of his fellow freethinkers. Among free inquirers, the being of a god is an open question. Many believe, some disbelieve, and many more are in doubt. Gilbert Vale. In the late 18th century, Thomas Paine assailed slavery and organized religions from the outside. 
a half century later, some Christians began raising objections from within their own churches. We turn now to another audio clip from American Free Thought. This from part three of the four-part series, Gilded Age. The Gilded Age is probably the most unsettled time. Uh, more social change, more innovation in that 40-year period than almost any other so in American history. So the free thinkers were taking the stage at a time when many of the traditional social assumptions were in flux. And in part, this empowered the free thinkers' enemies because religious conservatives had very good reason to think that society was going to develop in unimaginable new ways and go down paths of terrible evil as they saw it, because really, everything was on the table. In the history of American publishing, New York City played a pivotal role. In the 19th century, Park Row in Lower Manhattan was known as Newspaper Row. It was home to the great papers, famous publishers and editors, James Gordon Bennett of the Herald, Tribune founder Horace Greeley, Joseph Pulitzer of The World, and Henry Raymond founder of the New York Times. Manhattan was also home to the nation's most successful evangelical Christian publisher, the American Tract Society. As a testament to its publishing power, the Tract Society's skyscraper constructed in 1894 overshadowed both the Tribune and New York Times buildings. The American Tract Society uh, was briefly one of the most powerful organizations in America. They would print up hundreds of thousands of tracts and Bibles and what have you. And we see during the Gilded Age that there is a marked rightward turn within many American Christian communities. And a lot of that can be ascribed to the activism of organizations like the American Tract Society, who used the changes in printing technology to disseminate a very culturally conservative form of Christianity as it never had been before. During this period, a number of freethought periodicals also flourished, many published by prominent abolitionists and suffragists. And while they never posed a serious threat to the influential metropolitan dailies or the American Tract Society, they did provide an alternative voice. We think of the dominant players, the New York Herald, the New York Times, which became dominant. These were governed by men. But there are lots of other players. There was a whole world of an alternative press in the Midwest, and the East, later in the West. And women were significant players in this. Matilda Jocelyn Gage published a newspaper called The National Citizen and Ballot Box. And that was the official publication of the National Women's Suffrage Association, which was the organization founded by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. 
there were r religious publishers, there were s secular publishers, free-thinking publishers. We start out with Fanny Wright in the early 19th century. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton published The Revolution in New York City in the 1870s. Victoria Woodhull and her sister, Tennessee Claflin Woodhull, published Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. These were very lively, interesting, in many ways quite radical papers. Bennett had one of these papers, The Truth Seeker. In 1873, during a drought in Paris, Illinois, D.M. Bennett got into a debate with clergymen in the local newspaper over praying for rain. After the editor refused to print his infidel letters expressing his opinion that prayer was useless, the shaker turned free thinker, decided to publish a periodical with the intent of giving equal voice to advocates on all sides. His wife Mary named it The Truth Seeker. At 54 years old, Bennett was a seasoned entrepreneur who made and lost several small fortunes. In 1874, the former druggist, known as Dr. Bennett, relocated to New York City, where he hired a young printer, Eugene MacDonald, and began publishing in Lower Manhattan, the leading cultural center of the nation. The Gilded Age was an era of personal journalism, when editors like Horace Greeley not only reported the news, but influenced and shaped public opinion. Greeley says was the preface to quotations in his New York Tribune newspaper. The truth seekers moved to New York, where it would remain for nearly a century, coincided with the dawn of the culture wars in America. The Gilded Age was a time when celebrity and controversy sold papers, but it was also a period when freedom of the press came under attack. Two years before Bennett moved to New York, women's rights leader Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president of the United States, was arrested by Anthony Comstock for exposing an adulterous affair of America's most famous minister, Henry Ward Beecher. There are a lot of parallels between the Gilded Age and today. Victoria Woodhull was a celebrity. Anthony Comstock made himself a celebrity. He understood in an instinctive way that he would be less vulnerable if he were a celebrity. Uh, so he put himself forward at every opportunity. He went after Victoria Woodhull in the same, for the same reason that she published the Beecher scandal, uh, because he knew that it, it would get him attention. It was an age because of the rise of the press, the, the, the increasing use of illustration in the press. It was an age in which people were being elevated to a new status, and some of them knew how to work that. D.M. Bennett's journalism was not only personal, it was highly provocative, often blasphemous. While the columns of the mainstream press were filled with favorable articles praising pastors, Bennett chastised clergymen, chronicled their crimes, and condemned Christianity. Inspired by Thomas Paine and his book, The Age of Reason, Bennett targeted revealed religion and especially Christian hypocrisy. To his supporters, 
Dr. Bennett was the American Voltaire. To his detractors, he was the devil's own advocate. We honestly believe Christianity to be false, to be the greatest sham in the world without truth in its history, without loveliness in its doctrines, without benefit to the human race, and without anything to sustain it in the hold it has upon the world. D.M. Bennett. We're speaking with Roderick Bradford and Tom Flynn. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. Roderick Bradford, let's go to you. There's a number of uh, amazing people in the series here. Lawrence Goodhart, Carol Faulkner, Helen Horowitz, Chris Finan, whom I have the pleasure of working with on Band Books Week every year, and uh, Chris Finan is a guest on the show occasionally. You really bring a lot of wonderful voices and diverse voices to this series. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's also David Cantasta in the series, and Jack Fruckman, who is Thomas Paine's scholar. I think he wrote three or four books on Thomas Paine. I would like to get back to this. Sorry to keep going back to this, but, but the Cupid's Yokes, the thing that we forgot to say was Cupid's Yokes, which was the pamphlet that D.M. Bennett went to jail for, for sending through the mail. He did not write the pamphlet. It was written by Ezra Haywood, who also in Cupid's Yokes, Ezra Haywood uh, criticized Anthony Comstock and the Comstock obscenity laws. Comstock arrested Ezra Haywood, and he was in jail, and, and Ezra Haywood got a presidential pardon. But when D.M. Bennett went to jail, and that was one of the largest pardon campaigns in the history of the nation, he was not pardoned. So the person who wrote the book got a presidential pardon, but D.M. Bennett did not. That's an interesting point. Why, do you, why is that? Well, because basically Rutherford Hayes, his wife, was very religious, and she was influenced by her minister, and there was a lot of heat on both sides. Basically, when Haywood was jailed, there was an enormous uproar from what we would now think of as the liberal left, and on that occasion, Hayes yielded to it and pardoned Haywood. When the same issues came up again very shortly thereafter, and now it was Bennett being jailed merely for selling Haywood's booklet, the religious conservatives had had a chance to marshal their forces, including the president's wife, and this time Hayes refused to issue the pardon, in spite of, and this this just gives an idea that these controversies were front-page news at the time, the largest petition campaign in the history of the United States, a petition bearing tens and tens of thousands of signatures, was sent to President Hayes, petitioning for him to pardon Bennett the way he had earlier pardoned Haywood. And uh, unfortunately, the forces of reaction triumphed even over that. Plus, he had Robert Ingersoll. Tom, maybe you could mention Ingersoll's role. Yes, Ingersoll, we like to call him the most remarkable American most people never heard of. He was one of the foremost attorneys in the years after the Civil War. He was a campaign speechmaker without whom the Republicans could not get a president into the White House. And he was America's most popular freethought lecturer. Ingersoll was also involved, somewhat reluctantly, because he didn't like Haywood's free love ideas, but Ingersoll was involved in lobbying Hayes for Haywood's release. Ingersoll came to the White House and met personally with Hayes, seeking the release of D.M. Bennett. And 
Hayes still wouldn't do it. It's a fascinating period in history. In fact, Hayes almost didn't become president in that election against Samuel Tilden after the corruption of the Grand Administration. We also have the rise of the labor unions, uh, strikes coming up in the 1880s with the Haymarket Affair, the robber barons and so forth. A really remarkable and rich part of American history that I think we learn a great deal from. And there, you're certainly getting a lot of, of rich material for, for American free thought from that time in our history. Oh, very much so. You know, in one sense, I forget who you quoted, objecting to a hydra. Robert Owen. Robert Owen, yes. Yeah, well, there was, another, there was another hydra, the reform movement, the radical reform movement, particularly in the latter half of the 19th century, was a hydra in a good way. It had many issues, many heads. Early to mid-century, you had the abolition movement. You know, we tend to hear now that uh, the opposition to slavery was mostly in the churches. Well, that's not true. There were liberal Christians who were very powerful in the abolition movement, but there were also a lot of freethinkers. And when you look at the record impartially, freethinkers probably carried as much or even a little more water in the abolitionist causes as the people in the churches. And, of course, you had the more conservative churches who were foursquare in defense of slavery. So uh, even abolitionism, on balance, really owes a lot of its impetus to the free thought movement. We have a final clip to play for you today from the series American Free Thought. This from part three of the four-part series, National Liberal League. The National Liberal League was founded during the dawn of the culture wars when puritanical obscenity laws united religious conservatives but caused deep division in the free thought movement. Right as uh, president of the National Liberal League was, was very important in taking a stand on behalf not only of free thought but of free sexual expression. Members of the National Liberal League uh, were deeply concerned about these efforts. They didn't want, in many cases, to be labeled as smut mongers themselves, so they tried to make distinctions between that which was permissible and that which wasn't. One of the things they tried to say was, uh, for adults, informed information about contraception uh, and about the human body was something that should be allowed. Comstock got the Comstock law passed in which he became the enforcer of male censorship, really began an effort to shut down radical thought. And this would include uh, free thinkers, uh, feminists, those who are advocating different types of gender relations, those who, those female physicians and male physicians who are trying to educate women as well as men about reproductive rights and biological issues, the anatomy itself. These issues came to the fore. Robert Ingersoll disagreed with both D.M. Bennett, a Liberal League vice president, and Elysia Wright over the contentious issue of the Comstock laws. Ingersoll argued for only modifying them, while Bennett and Wright wanted them utterly repealed. Robert Ingersoll and D.M. Bennett stood a good bit away from one another in the free thought movement. Ingersoll was a relative social conservative. Bennett was seen as a radical. Uh, Bennett uh, was one of the most conspicuous free thought leaders 
who wanted to press for complete repeal of the Comstock laws. Ingersoll thought that was very imprudent and would create the impression that freethinkers were in cahoots with pornographers. Elijah Wright shared D.M. Bennett's views and saw the danger in only modifying the ill-defined obscenity laws. He saw the censorship during the age of Jackson in which President Jackson shut down the abolitionist press in the South, harassed people, people were killed, people were arrested and intimidated. And so Elijah Wright, having experienced this in the 1830s and 40s, saw the same thing happening in a little different way after the Civil War. And so even though he was in his late 70s and early 80s, he devoted himself with characteristic energy, defending the rights of people to express their points of view, fundamental First Amendment issues, including free thought. So he very much feared, feared the church orthodoxy. He called it a slavery of the mind. The, the controversy over Comstock and obscenity and D.M. Bennett was a recurring source of division in the free thought movement. And certainly within the National Liberal League, there was a, an ongoing debate over how much should Comstock be opposed. Wright really, in many ways, took a blanket stand on free expression, free thought, in, in that sense. And he was very afraid of the churches intimidating and shutting down the idea of people to think freely. So he was very much a radical individualist in that sense of liberal with the, the idea of liberty, personal liberty, personal expression was essential to him, essential to him. But you know, this effort to draw lines has always been a tricky one because what is to one person uh, inf information is to another person obscenity or smut. So that was a difficult line to take. The position of D.M. Bennett was probably a better one, which was let there be freedom of expression. Let good judgment prevail. Uh, we can allow adults to make distinctions. Bennett is everything vile and blasphemy and infidelism. His idea of liberty is to do and say as he pleases, without regards to the rights, morals, or liberties of others. Anthony Comstock. This tension over how to respond to the Comstock laws kept tearing the movement apart. It really centered on how do we respond to this blood feud between Anthony Comstock and D.M. Bennett. An early critic of the Comstock obscenity laws was prominent New York physician and birth control pioneer Edward Bliss Foote, who was arrested by Anthony Comstock in 1876. He had a very large following, very large practice, and he had publications and the Murray Hill Printing Press. He was a supporter of Victoria Woodhull. He was also a supporter of Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony attempted to vote and was arrested, and Dr. Foote paid a significant portion of her fine. He was an advocate both of sexual expression for men and women, and he was an advocate of planning one's births. So he had been courageous long before 
uh, he was brought before the courts. Another opponent and victim of the obscenity laws was former abolitionist Ezra Haywood, author of Cupid's Yokes, a pamphlet that advocated his free love philosophy and his opposition to the marriage institution. Marriage was a sort of prostitution because with the husband's power over the wife, he could demand uh, sexual access, sexual favors according to the, to the law uh, as, as he willed. And so he, he retorted that this was female exploitation. So in many ways, we're really feminist in the sense that they were demanding equal rights, equal justice, uh, end of a double standard for women. So the idea of free love did take on a, largely through its critics, a largely a pejorative, promiscuous, unhealthy, exploitative, sensational, libidinous uh, type of characteristic. The arrests of Dr. Foote and Ezra Haywood caused indignation among free thinkers and among ordinary Americans who were beginning to question the motive and method of operation used by America's self-appointed arbiter of morals, Anthony Comstock. Comstock went after the material for a number of reasons. One, he didn't like the people who were writing it. He called them sometimes free thinkers and free lusters. But he also didn't like the material. He did not believe that information about contraception should be publicly known. He thought that not only would it fall into the wrong hands, uh, but he, he didn't trust people, even adults, to read that material. Cupid's Yokes was not obscene. It had nothing in it of prurient interest. Basically, this was his cranky, geeky thesis on how marriage ought to be reformed and how people ought to be free to pursue uh, their sexual attractions. And he included a good Jeremiah against Anthony Comstock personally and against the Comstock laws. D.M. Bennett called Comstock's crusade the American Inquisition. Its extremism and cruelty prompted prominent freethinkers to form the National Defense Association. The organization's goal was to investigate questionable federal and state Comstock law prosecutions and defend those who were unjustly assailed by the enemies of free speech and free press. When a petition with 70,000 names was presented to Congress calling for the repeal of the Comstock Act, it was, you know, the response to the, the, the first, you know, protest movement in, on behalf of free speech was in the reaction to the, the passage of the Comstock Act. The National Defense Association uh, was a very important organization. It would become a forerunner of the American Civil Liberties Union. And it was basically founded uh, to protect the victims of Anthony Comstock and the Comstock laws. The National Defense Association was actually founded in the truth seeker offices. Ironically, it was in the Truth Seeker office where D.M. Bennett was arrested on November 12, 1877, by Anthony Comstock for publishing a scientific tract and his open letter to Jesus Christ. A few months later, at a Freethinkers convention in Watkins Glen, New York, 
Bennett, along with two other free-thought activists, was arrested again for selling Cupid's yokes. The editor was arrested a third time for mailing the pamphlet directly to Anthony Comstock, who ordered it using a decoy letter. The charge is ostensibly obscenity, but the real offense is that I presume to utter sentiments and opinions in opposition to the views entertained by the Christian Church. D.M. Bennett. Prior to his trial for mailing Cupid's yokes, Bennett defiantly published his open letter to Samuel Colgate, wherein he exposed the soap manufacturer who was advertising his Vaseline product as a method of birth control. The publicity prompted freethinkers to boycott Colgate products for decades. Worse than all other mean acts are those performed by hypocrites under the cloak of purity and virtue. D.M. Bennett. One of the most important of the day, a Sun newspaper writer opined while covering Dr. Bennett's four-day standing room-only trial in Lower Manhattan. Bennett's attorneys were prominent freethinker Thaddeus B. Wakeman and his brother Abram. Bennett was tried by the same judge who had earlier convicted Dr. Foote, Charles L. Benedict. Anthony Comstock's favorite judge was familiar with the Hicklin standard, a test to define obscenity borrowed from English common law. The common law practice was to take only a section of the material and pay no attention to the context in which it was placed, to put that section before the jury to determine whether or not it was obscene, to allow no question of motive on the part of the publisher of the material to come into play. So a person might be of the best motive, but if they had published this material uh, and sold it, then they were responsible. The Wakeman brothers argued in court that the Comstock law violated the Constitution and violated elemental principles of liberty. That's an important heritage from that trial. On March 21, 1879, D.M. Bennett was convicted for mailing obscenity, fined $300, and sentenced to 13 months at hard labor in the Albany Penitentiary. When Bennett's case came up for review, the panel of judges included Judge Benedict himself and Samuel Blatchford, a future justice of the Supreme Court. He affirmed the Hicklin test, and he affirmed all the procedures that Judge Benedict had used, which came out of the English common law tradition. And then, because he, Justice Blatchford, became a Supreme Court justice, this appeal case of Bennett was regarded essentially as as good as having been resolved by the Supreme Court. The 60-year-old publisher's conviction and imprisonment became a cause celeb for freethinkers and free speech proponents. A petition with over 200,000 names was sent to President Rutherford B. Hayes, asking that the elderly editor be pardoned. Even the Shakers supported Bennett, once a member of their community whom they praised as 
an illustrious martyr suffering from the most devilish bigotry of the day. We're speaking with Tom Flynn, executive director of the Council for Secular Humanism, also executive producer of American Free Thought Series, also Roderick Bradford, filmmaker, biographer of D.M. Bennett, 19th century's most controversial publisher and, and free speech martyr. We are talking about the American Free Thought Series today, and you're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. Peter? So the American Free Thought, the, the four-hour series now, where can people see this? It's available from the Council for Secular Humanism uh, on our website, secularhumanism.org. And we have some volunteers around the country who are presenting it to local PBS stations. And uh, we hope that uh, one or more of them will be successful. Uh, National PBS hasn't been terribly interested in uh, overtures about it, but uh, uh, we're we're hoping that we can uh, break through in a couple of local stations, and then perhaps national PBS will be less frightened of it. Well, this is, I think, vital viewing. I mean, I I, I suppose I'm biased on two counts. One, I'm a history professor, and and two, directing Project Censored, really believing that we should have free thought and free expression and no censorship. And this four-hour series is a wonderful educational tool. It's a great discussion starter. I really hope people are able to to see it. It's You can learn more at AmericanFreeThought.tv. We're running out of time for this segment, but I also wanted to say that you have such rich material in this series on the so-called monkey trial. You go into such detail on, again, uh, Emma Goldman, the Soviet Ark. You mentioned the Mitchell Palmer raids. I mean, again, it's just it's a wonderful romp through history of some things that I think really need to be uncovered and reexamined. And really vital in terms of understanding culture wars and the American divisions that are we currently faced with. One thing, if I could add about, and I know I keep going back to Cupid's jokes, but since Bennett did go to jail for it, which hastened his death, the thing about Cupid's jokes is it was not obscene. And it's been revealed in Rutherford Hayes' diaries. He admitted that it was not obscene. So that's, that's the basis why I think Bennett, like Lenny Bruce, got a pardon. Um, Bennett should be eligible for a presidential pardon. I don't know that it would, would ever happen, but uh, I know Lenny Bruce, uh, those, he got a pardon. Well, these are important things to to remember, and again, how history impacts the present. And I know we, again, we're running out of time here. When we talked about that pendulum swinging and we talked about the 30s, we don't want to forget about Margaret Sanger and uh, the great efforts she made for birth control and slaying the Comstock beast there as well. But again, there's four hours here, and we urge listeners to check out AmericanFreeThought.tv. Check out the series. We've been speaking with Roderick Bradford and Tom Flynn, forces behind the American Free Thought series. We thank you for joining us today and uh, giving us some time and some of your expertise about the importance of American Free Thought and, again, as Robert Owen said, our mental liberty. So thanks again for joining us. Oh, Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you. We'd like to thank everyone for joining us today for this 4th of July special on American Free Thought. We thank our guests, Roderick Bradford and Tom Flynn. Certainly thank our producer, Anthony Fest, as well as Erica Bridgman. The Project Censored show airs on over a dozen stations around the United States. Archives can be found online at projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook. 
Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you tune in again next time. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own my special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim, but change never came. It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital gain. But my people getting tired of the pain and the shame. We're not commodities or gods that turn the global economy. We're the promise of a legacy, a spirit we're honoring. An anomaly to those who can't imagine a world without oppressive forces slaving for almighty dollar bills. We won. We got the love of the dark brothers and our sisters. We won. The people together can overthrow the system. We won. We got the love of the dark brothers and our sisters. The people organized can build the kind of future we want. Unthinkable towns, states, time, thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame. At the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers and our sisters.